Section 8 of A Theological-Political Treatise by Baruch Benedict de Spinoza Translated by Robert Harvey Monroe Elvis This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. Chapter 7, Part 2 Besides these sources of ambiguity, there are two others, one very important. Firstly, there are in Hebrew no vowels. Secondly, the sentences are not separated by any marks, elucidating the meaning or separating the clauses. Though the want of these two has generally been supplied by points and accents, such substitutes cannot be accepted by us, inasmuch as they were invented and designed by men of an after-age whose authority should carry no weight. The ancients wrote without points, that is, without vowels and accents, as is abundantly testified. Their descendants added what was lacking, according to their own ideas of scriptural interpretation, Wherefore, the existing accents and points are simply current interpretations and are no more authoritative than any other commentaries. Those who are ignorant of this fact cannot justify the author of the epistle to the Hebrews for interpreting chapter 11 verse 21 and Genesis chapter 47 verse 31 very differently from the version given in our Hebrew text as at present pointed, as though the apostle had been obliged to learn the meaning of scripture from those who added the points. In my opinion, the latter are clearly wrong. In order that every one may judge for himself and also see how the discrepancy arose simply from the want of vowels, I will give both interpretations. Those who pointed our version read, and Israel bent himself over, or changing Hegain into Aleph, a similar letter, towards the head of the bed. The author of the epistle reads, and Israel bent himself over the head of his staff, substituting mat for mita, from which it only differs in respect of vowels. Now, as in this narrative, it is Jacob's age only that is in question, and not his illness, which is not touched on till the next chapter. It seems more likely that the historian intended to say that Jacob bent over the head of his staff, a thing commonly used by men of advanced age for their support, than that he bowed himself at the head of his bed, especially as for the former reading no substitution of letters is required. In this example I have desired not only to reconcile the passage in which the epistle with the passage in Genesis, but also and chiefly to illustrate how little trust should be placed in the points and accents which are found in our present Bible, and so to prove that he who would be without bias in interpreting Scripture should hesitate about accepting them and inquire afresh for himself such being the nature and structure of the Hebrew language, one may easily understand that many difficulties are likely to arise, and that no possible method could solve all of them. It is useless to hope for a way out of our difficulties in the comparison of various parallel passages. We have shown that the only method of discovering the true sense of a passage, out of many alternative ones, is to see what are the usages of the language. For this comparison of parallel passages can only accidentally throw light on a difficult point, seeing that the prophets never wrote with the express object of explaining their own phrases or those of other people, and also because we cannot infer the meaning of one prophet or apostle by the meaning of another, unless on a purely practical question, not when the matter is speculative, or if a miracle or history is being narrated. I might illustrate my point with instances for there are many inexplicable phrases in Scripture, but I would rather pass on to consider the difficulties and imperfections of the method under discussion. 
A further difficulty attends the method from the fact that it requires the history of all that has happened to every book in the Bible. Such a history we are often quite unable to furnish. Of the authors, or, if the expression be preferred, the writers of many of the books, we are either in complete ignorance or at any rate in doubt, as I will point out at length. Further, we do not know either the occasion or the epochs when these books of unknown authorship were written. We cannot say into what hands they fell, nor how the numerous varying versions originated, nor lastly whether they were not other versions now lost. I have briefly shown that such knowledge is necessary, but I pass over certain considerations which I will now draw attention to. If we read a book which contains incredible or impossible narratives, or is written in a very obscure style, and if we know nothing of its author, nor of the time or occasion of its being written, we shall vainly endeavour to gain any certain knowledge of its true meaning. For being in ignorance on these points, we cannot possibly know the aim or intended aim of the author. If we are fully informed, we so order our thoughts as not to be in any way prejudiced either in ascribing to the author or him for whom the author wrote either more or less than his meaning, and we only take into consideration what the author may have had in his mind, or what the time and occasion demanded. I think this must be tolerably evident to all. It also happens that in different books we read histories in themselves similar, but which we judge very differently according to the opinions we have formed of the authors. I remember once to have read in some book that a man named Orlando Furioso used to drive a kind of winged monster through the air, fly over any countries he liked, kill unaided vast number of men and giants, and such like fancies, which from the point of view of reason are obviously absurd. A very similar story I read in Ovid, of Perseus, and also in the books of Judges and Kings of Samson, who alone and unarmed killed thousands of men, and of Elijah, who flew through the air and at last went up to heaven in a chariot of fire with horses of fire. All these stories are obviously alike, but we judge them very differently. The first only sought to amuse, the second had a political object, the third a religious object. We gather this simply from the opinions we have previously formed of the authors. Thus it is evidently necessary to know something of the authors of writings which are obscure or unintelligible if we would interpret their meaning. And for the same reason, in order to choose the proper reading from among a great variety, we ought to have information as to the versions in which the differences are found, and as to the possibility of other readings have been discovered by persons of greater authority. A further difficulty attends this method in the case of some of the books of Scripture, namely, that they are no longer extant in their original language. The Gospel according to Matthew, and certainly the Epistle to the Hebrews, were written, it is taught, in Hebrew, though they no longer exist in that form. Aben Ezra affirms in his commentaries that the book of Job was translated into Hebrew out of another language, and that its obscurity arises from this fact. I say nothing of the apocryphal books, for their authority stands on very inferior ground. The foregoing difficulties in this method of interpreting Scripture from its own history I conceive to be so great that I do not hesitate to say that the true meaning of Scripture is in many places inexplicable, or at best, mere subject for guesswork. But I must again point out, on the other hand, that such difficulties only arise when we endeavour to follow the meaning of a prophet in matters which cannot be perceived, but only imagined, not in things whereof the understanding can give a clear and distinct idea, and which are conceivable through themselves. 
matters which by their nature are easily perceived cannot be expressed so obscurely as to be unintelligible as the proverb says a word is enough to the wise euclid who only wrote of matters very simple and easily understood can easily be comprehended by any one in any language we can follow his intention perfectly and be certain of his true meaning without having a thorough knowledge of the language in which he wrote in fact a quite rudimentary acquaintance is sufficient we need make no researches concerning the life the pursuits or the habits of the author nor indeed we inquire in what language nor when he wrote nor the vicissitudes of his book nor its various readings nor how nor by whose advice it has been received what we here say of euclid might equally be said of any book which treats of things by their nature perceptible thus we conclude that we can easily follow the intention of scripture in moral questions from the history we possess of it and we can be sure of its true meaning the precepts of true piety are expressed in very ordinary language and are equally simple and easily understood further as true salvation and blessedness consist in a true ascent of the soul and we truly assent only to what we clearly understand it is most plain that we can follow with certainty the intention of scripture in matters relating to salvation and necessary to blessedness therefore we need not be much troubled about what remains such matters inasmuch as we generally cannot grasp them with our reason and understanding are more curious than profitable i think i have now set forth the true method of scriptural interpretation and have sufficiently explained my own opinion thereon besides i do not doubt that every one will see that such a method only requires the aid of natural reason the nature and efficacy of the natural reason consists in deducing and proving the unknown from the known or in carrying premises to their legitimate conclusions and these are the very processes which our method desiderates though we must admit that it does not suffice to explain everything in the bible such imperfection does not spring from its own nature but from the fact that the path which it teaches us as the true one has never been tended or trodden by men and has thus by the lapse of time become very difficult and almost impossible as indeed i have shown in the difficulties i draw attention to there only remains to examine the opinions of those who differ from me the first which comes under our notice is that the light of nature has no power to interpret scripture but that a supernatural faculty is required for the task what is meant by this supernatural faculty i will leave to its propounders to explain personally i can only suppose that they have adopted a very obscure way of stating their complete uncertainty about the true meaning of scripture if we look at their interpretations they contain nothing supernatural at least nothing but the merest conjectures let them be placed side by side with the interpretations of those who frankly confess that they have no faculty beyond their natural ones we shall see that the two are just alike both human both pondered over both laboriously invented to say that the natural reason is insufficient for such results is plainly untrue firstly for the reasons above stated namely that the difficulty of interpreting scripture arises from no defect in human reason but simply from the carelessness not to say malice of men who neglected the history of the bible while there were still materials for inquiry secondly from the fact admitted i think by all that the supernatural faculty is a divine gift granted only to the faithful but the prophets and apostles did not preach to the faithful only but chiefly to the unfaithful and wicked such persons therefore were able to understand the intention of the prophets and apostles 
otherwise the prophets and apostles would have seemed to be preaching to little boys and infants not to men endowed with reason moses too would have given his laws in vain if they could only be comprehended by the faithful who need no law indeed those who demand supernatural faculties for comprehending the meaning of the prophets and apostles seem truly lacking in natural faculties so that we should hardly suppose such persons the possessors of a divine supernatural gift the opinion of maimonides was widely different he asserted that each passage in scripture admits of various nay contrary meanings but that we could never be certain of any particular one till we knew that the passage as we interpreted it contained nothing contrary or repugnant to reason if the literal meaning clashes with reason though the passage seems in itself perfectly clear it must be interpreted in some metaphorical sense this doctrine he lays down very plainly in chapter twenty five part two of his book more nebuchim for he says know that we shrink not from affirming that the world hath existed from eternity because of what scripture saith concerning the world's creation for the texts which teach that the world was created are not more in number than those which teach that god hath a body neither are the approaches in this matter of the world's creation closed or even made hard to us so that we should not be able to explain what is written as we did when we showed that god hath no body nay peradventure we could explain and make fast the doctrine of the world's eternity more easily than we did away with the doctrines that god hath a beatified body yet two things hinder me from doing as i have said and believing that the world is eternal as it hath been clearly shown that god hath not a body we must perforce explain all those passages whereof the literal sense agreeeth not with the demonstration for sure it is that they can be so explained but the eternity of the world hath not been so demonstrated therefore it is not necessary to do violence to scripture in support of some common opinion whereof we might at the bidding of reason embrace the contrary such are the words of maimonides and they are evidently sufficient to establish our point for if he had been convinced by reason that the world is eternal he would not have hesitated to twist and explain away the words of scripture till he made them appear to teach this doctrine he would have felt quite sure that scripture though everywhere plainly denying the eternity of the world really intends to teach it so that however clear the meaning of scripture may be he would not feel certain of having grasped it so long as he remained doubtful of the truth of what was written for we are in doubt whether a thing is in conformity with reason or contrary thereto so long as we are uncertain of its truth and consequently we cannot be sure whether the literal meaning of a passage be true or false if such a theory as this were sound i would certainly grant that some faculty beyond the natural reason is required for interpreting scripture for nearly all things that we find in scripture cannot be inferred from known principles of the natural reason and therefore we should be unable to come to any conclusion about their truth or about the real meaning and intention of scripture but should stand in need of some further assistance further the truth of this theory would involve that the masses having generally no comprehension of nor leisure for detailed proofs would be reduced to receiving all their knowledge of scripture on the authority and testimony of philosophers and consequently would be compelled to suppose that the interpretations given by philosophers were infallible truly this would be a new form of ecclesiastical authority and a new sort of priests or pontiffs more likely to excite men's ridicule than their veneration 
certainly our method demands a knowledge of hebrew for which the masses have no leisure but no such objection as the foregoing can be brought against us for the ordinary jews or gentiles to whom the prophets and apostles preached and wrote understood the language and consequently the intention of the prophet or apostle addressing them but they did not grasp the intrinsic reason of what was preached which according to maimonides would be necessary for an understanding of it there is nothing then in our method which renders it necessary that the masses should follow the testimony of commentators for i point to a set of unlearned people who understood the language of the prophets and apostles whereas maimonides could not point to any such who could arrive at the prophetic or apostolic meaning through their knowledge of the cause of things as to the multitude of our time we have shown that whatsoever is necessary to salvation though its reasons may be unknown can easily be understood in any language because it is thoroughly ordinary and usual it is in such understanding as this that the masses acquiesce not in the testimony of commentators with regard to other questions the ignorant and the learned fare alike but let us return to the opinion of maimonides and examine it more closely in the first place he supposes that the prophets were in entire agreement one with another and that they were consummate philosophers and theologians for he would have them to have based their conclusion on the absolute truth further he supposes that the sense of scripture cannot be made plain from scripture itself for the truth of things is not made plain therein in that it does not prove anything nor teach the matters of which it speaks through their definitions and first causes therefore according to maimonides the true sense of scripture cannot be made plain from itself and must not be there sought the falsity of such a doctrine is shown in this very chapter for we have shown both by reason and examples that the meaning of scripture is only made plain through scripture itself and even in questions deducible from ordinary knowledge should be looked for from no other source lastly such a theory supposes that we may explain the words of scripture according to our preconceived opinions twisting them about and reversing or completely changing the literal sense however plain it may be such license is utterly opposed to the teaching of this and the preceding chapters and moreover will be evident to every one as rash and excessive but if we grant all this license what can it effect after all absolutely nothing those things which cannot be demonstrated and which make up the greater part of scripture cannot be examined by reason and cannot therefore be explained or interpreted by this rule whereas on the contrary by following our own method we can explain many questions of this nature and discuss them on a sure basis as we have already shown by reason and example those matters which are by their nature comprehensible we can easily explain as has been pointed out simply by means of the context therefore the method of maimonides is clearly useless to which we may add that it does away with all the certainty which the masses acquire by candid reading or which is gained by any other persons in any other way in conclusion then we dismiss maimonides's theory as harmful useless and absurd as to the tradition of the pharisees we have already shown that it is not consistent while the authority of the popes of rome stands in need of more credible evidence the latter indeed i reject simply on this ground for if the popes could point out to us the meaning of scripture as surely as did the high priests of the jews i would not be deterred by the fact that there have been heretic and impious roman pontiffs for among the hebrew high priests of old there were also heretics and impious men who gained the high priesthood by improper means 
but who nevertheless had scriptural sanction for their supreme power of interpreting the law see deuteronomy chapter 17 verses 11 and 12 and chapter 33 verse 10 also malachi chapter 2 verse 8 however as the popes can show no such sanction their authority remains open to very grave doubt nor should any one be deceived by the example of the jewish high priests and think that the catholic religion also stands in need of a pontiff he should bear in mind that the laws of moses being also the ordinary laws of the country necessarily required some public authority to ensure their observance for if every one were free to interpret the laws of his country as he pleased no state could stand but would for that very reason be dissolved at once and public rights would become private rights with religion the case is widely different inasmuch as it consists not so much in outward actions as in simplicity and truth of character it stands outside the sphere of law and public authority simplicity and truth of character are not produced by the constraint of laws nor by the authority of the state no one the world over can be forced or legislated into a state of blessedness the means required for such a consummation are faithful and brotherly admonition sound education and above all free use of the individual judgment therefore as the supreme right of free thinking even on religion is in every man's power and as it is inconceivable that such power could be alienated it is also in every man's power to wield the supreme right and authority of free judgment in this behalf and to explain and interpret religion for himself the only reason for vesting the supreme authority in the interpretation of law and judgment on public affairs in the hands of the magistrates is that it concerns questions of public right similarly the supreme authority in explaining religion and in passing judgment thereon is lodged with the individual because it concerns questions of individual right so far then from the authority of the hebrew high priests telling in confirmation of the authority of the roman pontiffs to interpret religion it would rather tend to establish individual freedom of judgment thus in this way also we have shown that our method of interpreting scripture is the best for as the highest power of scriptural interpretation belongs to every man the rule for such interpretation should be nothing but the natural light of reason which is common to all not any supernatural light nor any external authority moreover such a rule ought not to be so difficult that it can only be applied by very skilful philosophers but should be adapted to the natural and ordinary faculties and capacity of mankind and such i have shown our method to be for such difficulties as it has arise from men's carelessness and are no part of its nature end of section eight read for you by chiquito crasto birmingham alabama